and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, USA, I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 642 for release on Sunday, June 13th, 2021. On WaveScan today, the radio saga on two small islands south of New Zealand. We'll continue Aaron Castillo's conversation with Marty Wohl of the American Radio Relay League, and Henry Umatai will be along with our Philippine DX reports. The South Pacific nation of New Zealand is made up of two major home islands, the North Island and the South Island, together with an estimated 600 outlier islands. South of the South Island and on each side of the stormy Fovo Strait lie a dozen or more small islands, only one of which is inhabited. In our program today, which comes to you under the title The Radio Saga on Two Small Islands South of New Zealand, we plan to visit two of these islands in the Favo Strait for an interesting sequence of radio information and events. Ray Robinson is our tour guide. Thanks, Jeff. Let's start with Centre Island. This island, which is one mile long and half a mile wide, lies just over three miles off the south coast of New Zealand's South Island. It's a nature sanctuary with a lighthouse and an airstrip, and that's about all. A wooden lighthouse was erected on the island in 1878, and subsequently a communication cable was laid beneath the ocean with connection to the South Island at Colac Bay. However, in 1917, the cable developed a technical fault, and the government decided it would be cheaper to install a Morse code wireless station at the lighthouse for communication with Awarua Radio, VLB, later ZLB, at Bluff, near Invercargill, rather than to renew the faulty cable. In September 1939, warfare burst out in all its fury on continental Europe, England declared war against Germany and New Zealand, as part of the then British Empire, followed suit. Now, it happened that two amateur radio operators living in Invercargill, identified as Hazlitt and Sutton, continued using their amateur transmitters, albeit with emergency core transmissions under the call signs ZL4EF and ZL4GX. However, the government confiscated their transmission equipment, which was then transferred for use by army personnel who were serving as coast watchers on Centre Island. Thus, the transmitter used by Hazlitt as ZL4EF became RFP, and the transmitter used by Sutton as ZL4GX became RFM. It's understood that amateur radio operator Hazlitt with the emergency core call of ZL4EF at 100 Melbourne Street in Invercargill, had previously operated his radio equipment under his own call sign, ZL4HF. A few years after the end of the war in the Pacific, a small communication transmitter was installed in the lighthouse on Centre Island under the call sign ZMC. A 1958 photograph taken in the wireless room shows what appears to be a simple transmitter and receiver set, and the ship-style clock on the wall shows 6 o'clock. 
A handwritten logbook of transmissions from ZMC in 1966 shows that they contacted ZLB on the south coast of the South Island regularly four times each day. Now let's look at Stewart Island. This is the largest of the subsidiary islands of New Zealand, and from 1841 to 1853 it was actually governed as a separate province, the third province in the island archipelago. This island, along with the two main islands of New Zealand, was populated by Maori settlers some seven to eight hundred years ago. Stewart Island has a resident population these days of some 400 people, and it's roughly triangular in shape. It's about 40 miles long and 20 miles wide, and it lies across the southern side of the Favau Strait, about 20 miles south of the South Island. The only settlement on the island these days is Oban, which is located on Half Moon Bay in the centre of the northeast side of the island. Tourism is one of the main sources of income for the Stuart Islanders, though the China virus has brought this financial flow to a mere trickle. Sometimes small tourist planes fly in from the South Island and land on a water-hardened sandy beach on Stuart Island. There are occasions when the local islanders celebrate their island with a mock independence festival. It's true that there are always whale strandings along the coast of New Zealand and its many islands. It's stated that there have been more than 5,000 whale stranding events in the South Pacific during the past one and a half centuries. However, last year, 2020, there was an epidemic of whale strandings on several islands of the South Pacific, including Stewart Island. On November 23, 2020, two whale pods, with a total of 145 pilot whales, were beached at the southern end of Mason Bay on the west coast of Stewart Island, all of which unfortunately died. Mason Bay is accessible only by boat or plane. There's no roadway into the area. In 1931, a small communication station was opened at Oban Half Moon Bay under the call sign ZLO for communication with ZLB Awarua. However, that station was closed during the next year when a new underwater cable was installed for communication with the South Island. The ZLO call sign was subsequently applied to the Taupo communication station in the centre of the North Island, near the RNZI transmitter site at Rangitaiki. Fourteen years later, on Stewart Island in 1948, a small radio telephone transmitter was installed at Port Pegasus for communication with the mainland areas of New Zealand. This transmitter, with the call sign ZLHS, operated on 2182 kHz, though it's no longer in service and the entire settlement of Port Pegasus has since been abandoned. An FM repeater station on 96.4 MHz carries a relay from Radio Southland in Invercargill and it was installed at the settlement of Oban in December 1994. In addition, many FM, TV and medium wave stations in the South Island are readily audible throughout Stewart Island. In a most unusual move, the New Zealand government has given approval for the experimental transmission of electricity through the air from the South Island to Stewart Island. This concept is reminiscent of the experiments of Nikola Tesla in Colorado, USA, back in 1890. Tesla fed a huge high-frequency current through a massive electrical coil with the intent that magnetic inductance would produce a similar electrical response in another huge coil at a distance. 
Well, in the South Island of New Zealand, a small new company has been set up called MROD, which has conducted similar experiments with the transmission of a few watts of electricity over a distance of 130 feet. Funding for this experimental project has been provided by PowerCo, the second largest generator of electricity in New Zealand. And under the MROD PowerCo setup, four components are required. Obviously, they need electrical power. They need a transmitting antenna, some intermediate line-of-sight relay equipment, and a receiving antenna with a power converter. The transmitting antenna sends out a focused beam of converted electricity, which is surrounded by a system of lasers. If a bird or any object interrupts the laser beam, the beam of converted electricity is instantaneously and temporarily switched off, with therefore no harm to the unawares intruder. In view of the success of the original simple experiments, a more extensive set of equipment is currently under installation in the South Island, and if those experiments are successful, a similar set of equipment will be installed to convert electricity on the South Island of New Zealand and send it wirelessly to Stewart Island, a distance of some 20 miles. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ray Robinson of KVOH in Los Angeles for that tour of the islands south of New Zealand. Well, two weeks ago on Wayscan, Aaron Castillo was speaking with Marty Wool, call sign N6VI, the vice director of the Southwestern U.S. Division of the American Radio Relay League. Today, we continue with that interview. The reason why shortwave or high frequency is so interesting is because radio waves can bounce off the ionosphere and cross the Earth, while the by very high and ultra high are direct line of sight, which is why they need repeaters to cross the world. Because that's right. Bounce. That's right. Uh, the ionosphere, uh, a layer of the of the uh, above our our most of our atmosphere, where the sun's radiation <clears throat> creates uh, ions, which are basically you separate the electrons from the from their atoms. You rip one or two of them off, and they become electrically charged, and. Uh, uh, it has the ability to refract or bend radio waves. And if they bend just right, they'll go back down to Earth somewhere far from where they started. Uh, you get up high enough and they don't refract anymore. They just keep going out into space, which is good if you're doing satellite communication. But for terrestrial, it does limit you. So the HF is unique in that regard, which is why the uh, most of the uh, foreign uh, broadcasters for so long uh, maintain... HF stations around the world, uh, whether it was you know Radio Havana or the various uh, the various countries have their HF radio spectrum. Now you're finding some of those stations are shutting down because, of course, they take manpower, they take electrical power requirements. It's costly, and with internet radio, if you will, fewer and fewer people are using. Uh, AM broadcast to receive their news and information. It's kind of too bad because really once that radio station is operating, it doesn't take a lot of infrastructure other than having power available uh, to get signals to places that otherwise might not have any coverage at all. Uh, whereas with the internet, you need you need infrastructure to be able to yes. uh, send and receive. So uh, we, we look at radio as kind of a, you know, independent uh, of the normal infrastructure requirements, uh, which is one of the things that makes amateur radio particularly useful. 
in case of disaster where that infrastructure is either overloaded or in severe cases damaged to the point where it doesn't work anymore. So could you please explain to me, like, what got you into radio? I kind of thought that question might come up. Uh, I was, uh, before radio, uh, I was a Boy Scout. And one of the things that uh, we used to do were these competitions. Uh, They were called field days, and the scout troops would gather, and uh, they would do uh, various competitions. And one of them was a a signaling competition where we used Morse code. But instead of sending it with audio like we usually do now, uh, it was sent with big flags. And you you did a dip to the right was a dit, and a dip to the left was a daw. Well, I became the, uh, the receiver on the signaling team. And we used to win pretty much all the time. We, we had pretty, I had a good guy sending, and I had a scribe to write it down. I'd just read the characters as I saw the flags going on the other side. And uh, that came in handy later on when I was in high school. And a couple of friends were into amateur radio, and they were showing me what they were doing. And I thought, hey, this is pretty interesting. Um, I was always interested in technology. It didn't end up being my career, but it did for a lot of other amateur radio operators. And uh, so I uh, had the Morse code and able to pass the, uh, the first test and studied for the written. And we, uh, we got the license and then got on the air with our little crystal controlled radio and, uh, you know, some wire in the air and started talking to different states around the country and even a couple of foreign countries. So that, uh, that got me hooked. Uh, then when I got out of high school and got into UCLA, I joined and later became president of the UCLA Radio Club, and they had a station up in uh, in Bolter Hall, which was the physics building. And we uh, we made some vast improvements to that station over time, and uh, uh, got quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of uh, airplay, <laughs> if you will, uh, in between classes. Um, but I think one of the things that helped me really stay in amateur radio and get a good start was I joined a local radio club. It was called the West Valley Amateur Radio Club. There were no adults. Unlike most clubs, it was almost wow. all you know, teenagers and you know, high school and college students. And they were very competitive. And there is a competitive aspect to amateur radio, as there is with many other sport. In fact, it's called radio sport around the world. And uh, uh, amateur radio has its own field day. Unlike the Boy Scout field day, this one involves uh, typically setting up at some remote location, using uh, power sources other than the commercial mains, uh, putting up antennas that are set up temporarily, and for a 24-hour period, seeing how many stations you can contact and uh, exchange information with and log accurately in that, in that 24-hour period. And this club that I got involved with, we got very seriously into that. And uh, we used to enter with uh, four transmitters. Uh, we had four, four simultaneous stations going. And compared with all the other stations in the country, six out of seven years we did that, we were first place in the country. So they they all took it very seriously. And I think a great indicator of how much that affected us is that most of the guys, and and it was mostly guys, there's one young lady there in the group who later became uh, chairman of the uh, EE department at uh, Cal State Northridge. but uh, most of the guys ended up staying in amateur radio and thriving. I mean, becoming well-known, uh, traveling around the world, as I've had a chance to do some of, and uh, doing competitions and presentations and so on. So 
it's fun to see, you know, here we are 50 some years later and the guys are still doing it and still having fun. <laughs> but that, you know, getting into a good club once you get licensed is a really great start because you have people around you who can answer your questions, who can show you yes. their stations, who can maybe help you if you need to. And there are a number of things you do in amateur radio that need somebody else to help you with it. Maybe putting up an antenna, solving a particular problem, tracing down some interference, whatever it may be. Having yes. a couple of people there to help can be really good. And clubs are a prime source for uh, training, for experience, and just for you know building up a, uh, a cadre of friends who can help you out when you need it, and you end up helping them as well. So you would say the club is the formative place where you where you properly get deep into amateur radio. That's where I you think go it's to... absolutely the best place. Yes, I mean there are people who are in very remote locations and there are no clubs, and uh, with technology today uh, there are certainly more opportunities to interact with people who aren't in your local area just as you know you're doing on on uh, zoom and and other uh, other media but to back then there really wasn't so much so if, if there wasn't a local club you didn't have a lot of people you could talk to about uh, it so yeah. Uh, that's yeah but still today having a having a local club is i think a great thing to it's a great start for amateur radio and it will it will make help you enjoy it more if you get into one and how did you go from going from a club and being a dxer to joining the arl proper okay uh uh like Two this. terms. DX, yes. by the way, for those who don't know, it means uh, distance. It's an abbreviation for distance, and it means trying to work mostly, you know, stations in other countries. And uh, we've had a lot of fun doing that. The ARRL or American Radio Relay League is actually it's a national association, just like you have uh, AOPA, the Amer uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, for those who fly. Mm -hmm. I used to be a member of that as well, and they are a resource, a technical resource. Uh, they are a lobbying group to try and protect the interests of amateurs uh, and amateur radio. They help promote, they help train, uh, they help improve the operating skills, and so on. They sponsor various activities on the air. Uh, they publish uh, educational material. I actually joined the league very shortly after becoming licensed. And, uh, and then while I was in college, uh, made the eight quarterly payments and became a life member of the league, which I guess turned out to be pretty good because I'm still here. <laughs> and, uh, and then actually uh, about, uh, what was it 2008? I was persuaded to run for one of the uh, board positions and uh, one, and I was vice director for the ARL Southwestern division for nine years. And that was both very educational. And also it gave me an opportunity as a representative of the league to go around and visit so many of these clubs that we're talking about and uh -huh. see how different clubs handle things. I would visit their field day stations. I would go and talk at their meetings and, uh, it really expanded the number of folks that I knew and the number of folks I could talk with. And that, that was very cool as well. Southwestern division included pretty much all Southern California plus the state of Arizona. So right now we are in the Southwest division. We are in the Southwestern division and in the Los Angeles section, uh, the, the league has 15 uh, divisions, which are, basically to elect people to the board and the board is really a policy making 
uh, organization, over policymaking and oversight. But the actual day-to-day operations of the league's programs rest with the sections of which most of the sections are just states. In some states, uh, they're broken up into two or three sections, you know, uh, uh, northern Florida, south Florida, west I central see. Florida, and so on. California uh, being the most populous state, uh, both in terms of people in general and, of course, with amateur radio operators, we have about 10% of all the hams in the U.S. Uh, we, uh, we have eight sections and actually wow. several, several divisions. So uh, at Los Angeles section is actually the only section in the U.S. that is one county. <laughs> Again, most sections are whole states. We're one county, but, you know, with 10 million people and uh, tens of thousands of amateurs, that kind of makes sense. So there must be a lot of support and clubs here in L.A. to warrant one section. There are many clubs. And uh, in fact, uh, one of the things you can do on the league's website, which is ARRL.org, is you can go and put in your, your zip code or your location or a town and find clubs, affiliated clubs in your area, those that have chosen to keep their information current with the league. And uh, they'll tell you when they meet and, and so on uh, and how to contact them. So it helps somebody who's new to the uh, amateur radio service to find clubs in their area, get an idea of what their specialties are, if any. Going back to the disaster response, I want to ask you about how did L.A., the L.A. sector, help and coordinate during the 1994 Northridge earthquake, which was terrible down here? I know several friends. I was not here at that time, by the way. I I had a four-year assignment. Uh, out of the country, uh, from or actually out of the uh, off the mainland, I was in the in the Honolulu office uh, from 1992 to 1996, and I was actually living up on the North Shore with a big HF station, nice. <laughs> six big towers, and lots of antennas, and talking all around the world. Uh, so I was not here for that, but I know a number of amateurs who use their stations to uh, primarily to handle health and welfare traffic, and that is people wanting to either find out how a relative is or to let other people know how they are. Uh, The first responders had their own uh, radio systems and uh, the quake did not really take those down. Uh, But certainly phone lines in some cases were jammed. Uh, This was a case of overload. You know, when when an earthquake, either everybody picks up the phone to say, did you feel it or how are you? Uh, are you doing okay? Or the phones get knocked off the hook. As far as the phone oh. system concerned, it's the same thing. The phone is busy and enough people do that and the, they stop working. So uh, amateurs here were uh, getting information from, from uh, local folks and passing it on to people out of the area. And in many cases, collecting inquiries from people out of the area and then trying to find out responses and then use the radio to get them back. Marty Wohl, N6VI of the American Radio Relay League, speaking with Aaron Castillo, host of Electronic Echoes on kpcradio.com in Los Angeles. Now it's off to the Philippines. Here's Henry Matai. Hello everyone, to our dear shortwave listeners, wherever you're welcome to the June 13th edition of the Philippine DX. This is report number 171. I'm Henry Umara in Bacolod City, Negros Occidental Central Philippines. Glad to be back and thank you for 
listening. I would like to thank our DXR friends for sending the reception report most recently. Mr. Norihiko Ede in Tokyo, Japan. Mr. Lee Salvi in Mentor, Ohio, USA. Mr. Kostyanti in Parbatarov in Saporizhia, Ukraine. And Mr. Richard Lemke in Alberta, Canada. So all of you, thank you very much. Reception lags for May 2021, May 9. NSK Radio Japan and 11815 in Japanese from Yamata at 1021 SAO 433. May 9 New Life Station KNLS on 9580 in English from Anchor Point at 1049 SAO 444. May 9 World Harvest Ratio TAWH on 9965 in English from Palau at 1025 SAO 333. May 9, Radio Taiwan International on 11915 in the from Tainan at 1055 SIO 555. May 10, Adventist World Radio on 17540 in Ilocano from Guam at 1040 SIO 454. May 16, China Radio International on 12070 in Filipino from Xi'an at 1146 SIO 444. May 16, China Radio International on 11.955 in Filipino from Kunming at 11.46 SIO 555. May 23 Radio Thailand World Service on 9.390 in English from Odentani at 14.05 SIO 454. May 26 Voice of Vietnam on 12.020 in English from Suntai at 12.35 SIO and May 31, Adventist World Radio on 12.040 in English from Agat Guam at 22.08 SIO 3.33. Send us your comments, suggestions, reception logs, and information to PilipinasDX at Yahoo.com. That's P-I-L-I-P-I-N-S-D-X for PilipinasDX at Yahoo.com. This has been Henry Umadai for WaveScan in Bacolod City, Negros, Occidental Central, Philippines, Mabuhay. At maraming salamat po. Thank you very much, Henry. And we end today's wave scan with a traditional song of New Zealand, Pukarikari Ana. This is a ukulele solo by Mike Lynch. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, the German shortwave service at Königswusterhausen, Part 3, and our Bangladesh DX report. Several QSL cards are available for the program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports to the AWR address in Bangkok and also to the station your radio is tuned to. WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa or to IRRS Italy or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in WaveScan. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is QSL at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards is Adventist World Radio, 
P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. The email address for other correspondence to Wavescan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone.